everybody. It is that time to get started. We are headed back to the land of Greece as soon as you get in your uh, seats and seat belt fastened. We can take off for the land of Thessalonica where we last found our missionaries. And uh, that's where we're headed. Let's pray for God's blessing. God, we pray. Now, Father God, as we examine the missionary field there and our missionaries, our beloved evangelists, sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, seeing all of the wonderful effects, all the lives that are radically changed and saved by your power and love, and also the persecution that follows. It seems a pattern, God, and it's the pattern of old, and it's the pattern that we find ourselves facing every day. Their task is our task. The response of the world then is the response of the world now. So give us fresh insights. Encourage our hearts, God, and help us to be found faithful and more like these Christians that we find in our passage today of noble character. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we return to our missionary travels here in Greece. Uh, gospel coming to Europe for the very first time. If you've uh, been joining us, you know that's where we're at. And only 20 years out from Jesus' death and resurrection, he told them afterwards to go into all the world and to preach the gospel because he has a heart of love and doesn't want anyone to perish. And so they, they obeyed that command. And we find now 20 years later a second missionary journey. Now the gospel is spread to mainland Europe. And so uh, we saw, here's the map, we saw where it started here. <laughs> Always got to laugh at this. Here we go. Uh, first to Philippi, then next to Thessalonica, where we were last week, and now on to Berea, modern-day Berea, just changed spelling with a V there. And so they're going to head down the coast. Uh, next year, they're going to Athens and then to Corinth. And so uh, all kinds of wonderful things await us on our journey down the coast uh, with Team Jesus, as I've been calling uh, them And so thanks for the map. A distinct pattern here as the evangelists move from place to place and it's been playing out ever so predictably. Uh, the gospel's preached. People's lives are radically changed by the power of God and a church gets established. That's how it goes. But not everyone is always happy about that. And some reject the message of God's love and salvation. They find the gospel a threat to their autonomy, their self-rule, and they also uh, see it as a threat and restrictive to the kind of lifestyle they've come to enjoy. And so they push back, uh, some of them more fiercely than others, but in keeping with the promise that everyone who wants to live God's God's Everyone who wants to live an obedient life to God in this life will suffer persecution because you're, you're in a dark world and you're, you're the bearers of light and truth. And so Jesus himself said, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. So of course, here we are with our flashlights in a dark world and it's irritating to those who prefer darkness. And we've seen it then 
and we see it now. So last time we were now getting some context and we'll dive back in and move along from Thessalonica, but in Thessalonica, wonderful response initially, as there always is. Three weeks, Paul got to preach his heart out there. A baby church started and hosted in Jason's house, a new believer, lots of new life going on and people laughing and rejoicing in the Lord until, of course, the devil begins to whisper lies into the Jewish synagogue rulers' ears who have rejected the message and become insanely jealous over everybody flocking to Jason's house instead of the synagogue and enamored with the gospel and the Messiah instead of the law of Moses. (laughs) And now they're all following Paul and Silas. They're the new pastors and these guys have become haters. So they stir up an angry mob, as you recall, with inflammatory rhetoric and they swarm Jason's private residence as um, protesters have been known to do. And uh, they can't find Paul, so they drag Jason, a new believer. Can you imagine his wife and his little kids and all the believers in the house? They drag some of the believers, along with Jason, downtown to the magistrates and slander them and call them troublemakers, international fugitives, who, um, and accuse them of sedition, of treason. They're going to overthrow the government and replace Caesar. And, and, and they know that that's nonsense, that the guys are preaching exactly the opposite, that we are respecting of the civil authorities. But they have found something they can take from the message and twist and use it against them because they kept calling Jesus king, you see. So thankfully, no one was injured here in Thessalonica, where we've parked, right? Uh, not, not this time <laughs> injured. Uh, but uh, the town officials did slap Jason with a uh, posting bond. It's kind of like a fine, so uh, extortion. So what they did is say, uh, pay us a thousand bucks, and uh, to ensure that you'll stop preaching and creating these riots. Because if there's another riot, you lose the thousand bucks, and that's just the beginning. So. Uh, At nightfall, this happened. Verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away, only after a month, got too hot, to Berea. On arriving there, they went into the Jewish synagogue again, always. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonian believers. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews, obviously the unbelieving Jews, because there were many believing Jews, but those who rejected the message and became hateful, in Thessalonica, learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea in the synagogues. So they went there too, 50 miles, packed up, made the trip, agitating the crowds and stirring them up again. Verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. That's nice. They're really after Paul. Uh, Verse 15, the men who escorted 
Paul brought him to Athens all the way. So they got, apparently, uh, no proof of this, but that's the way they traveled. Then they would sail around to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join Paul as soon as possible. So we're going to stop there and here in Berea and uh, that is what we're after uh, today. Just one stop. Then we'll go to Athens next time. And uh, that is very detailed and very as Paul will, will debate and go uh, toe-to-toe with the Greek philosophers of the day with the gospel. And so we look forward to that. But right now, there's a lot to learn here. And basically, I'm really going to hone in on one thing, the compliment of God. He gives the Bereans a compliment and contrasts them to the believers in Thessalonica. They're all going to heaven. They all receive the gospel. But God said, "Um, excuse me, everybody, whole world. These guys are cut above. And he marvels at their behavior. So anything God just wants to say, hey, wow, look at that, is worth imitating and spending some time talking about. Uh, So that's what we're going to do. We'll go back now as we've already done. We've got the opening passage on the screens here. And so you'll notice we get underway. And This always gets me going. It's under the cover of darkness that the heroes in the story have to flee. Like some fugitive, low-life thugs. Um, You know, here for me, it's a pathetic irony. The most honorable of all men, proclaiming the most magnificent of all messages, a labor of love at great cost to them, risking their lives, enduring persecution and beatings and jailings to help these undeserving sinners be reconciled to God, find forgiveness of sins, and be granted eternal life. And in return, God's heroes are rejected, beaten, mocked, scorned by the true thugs in the story. But one day soon, the truth is going to be known to the whole world, and God's people will be vindicated, and the true villains in the story will be brought to justice. And to quote Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so that day is coming. We will be saved and safe and secure in the presence of God. Not so for the rejecters. So it's a new day here, verse 10, we're underway. New mercies every morning. One might think Paul and Silas would avoid the synagogue because it's usually in the synagogue where all the trouble uh, starts. And so they get jealous. And yes, there's a nice response at first, but because of the nice response, some of the rejectors get jealous and stir up trouble and want to do them harm. And so, you know, (laughs) Paul, (laughs) don't you see what's coming here? And he would say, hey, isn't it worth it? Because of love for God and love for them, because God wills that none perish, how much more so true with his own people, his own people. He would say, my kinsmen, my relatives, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were entrusted with God's word, with the prophecies, with the temple, with the worship. By DNA, they're related to Jesus on his human side. Should I not have love and compassion and keep taking a beating in every town? It's worth it for even one. I love 
Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it out. In other words, if that flame, if that one flame is a flame of God's love, bring on the tsunami, because a tsunami washing over one flame that's flamed by heaven's power, that flame's not going out, because love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. So they go back into the hornet's nest to see if a few of the hornets want to find life. <laughs> and uh, always they do. So this one Saturday, love was hoping all things. And uh, it won't be disappointed because as you see, I think it's in verse 12, a um, great number of Jews, prominent Greek women and Greek men, hear the word of the Lord and are saved. Yeah, so they enter. It's a logical place to start. They're Hebrews. They go to the Hebrew Jewish Community Center in town here in Greece where the Jews kind of retain their Jewishness and meet together. And so they go in with the Shalom Alechams and, and you know, there's instant rapport. Hebrew brothers with Hebrew brothers and sisters. And Paul's right to expect good things. I mean, um, they're, uh, unlike the people in the Greek marketplace, as I've been saying every week, uh, who are worshiping Zeus and Aphrodite, uh, these folks in this place, once they go through those doors, those people are the only people in the area that have a working knowledge of the scriptures. They have a biblical worldview about Yahweh. They know about Yahweh and creation, the fall, the flood, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and promises of a Messiah. All they're missing is how Jesus fulfills the very prophecies they're very aware of and how it all makes sense. And that's why they walk in to the synagogue and they say, let us show you from our Hebrew brother. Hebrew brothers, let us show you from our Hebrew Bible the Hebrew prophecies about our Hebrew Messiah. Advantage Hebrews. If anybody ought to be saved, it is the Jews. And so now to this famous shout out, <laughs> the compliment from God. Amazing. Now the Brians were of no more noble character than the Thessalonians. Wow. Everyone loves a compliment. <laughs> you know. I just walked up to some guy and I said, uh, I said, hey, are you working out? Are you losing weight or what's up? And he goes, actually it's the opposite, you know. <laughs> But his wife, his wife said he appreciates the compliment because his doctor's been giving him a hard time. You know, so I'm not telling you who that is. But who doesn't love a compliment? I overheard two ladies talking about, are those new shoes? Oh, I love your new shoes. And their shoes like, oh, you know, and they're both in finding their happy. They're both finding their happy places because one noticed and said something nice about their shoes. And so it, it, it goes on and on. Or you always know just the right things to say. Or you do something and somebody says, that job you did, amazing. And wow, it just kind of washes over you, you know, refreshes you in a weary world, isn't it? It's just nice to hear something nice. Well, what about... When God calls something you did amazing, God says, wow, I'll marvel at that. Well, that's a cut above. I don't see that a lot. And you did it. Wow, 10 stars. That, that to me is worth imitating. And he, he does this with the Bereans here. And it's a little awkward, but God's not afraid of it. 
God says, uh, listen, there are two groups of Christians. Uh, one I'm going to commend because they're more noble than the other group. Love them the both, I uh, love them the same. Love both of them the same. <laughs> there we go. And, and they're equally of worth. They're all going to heaven. It's just that the behavior of one is far more noble than the behavior of the other well-loved Christians. So I, I, I want in on that. You know, and he does, that's not, this is not the only place God does that. You know, I love when the Roman centurion, he comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. He's got a dying servant that the Bible says he loved and adored. And the guy's racked with pain and he's about to die. He comes to faith. He comes to Jesus and says, oh, my servant's about to die. I need you to heal him. Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. And he says, I don't need to come to my house and go through the door and go to find him in the bedroom, lay your hands on him. No, 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 just say it. Just give the command. You're the commander-in-chief, aren't you? I'm a military guy. I know how this works. I have authority. I speak. It gets done. So general, one knee down, let's hear it. And he goes, wow, 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 wow. It says Jesus marveled. He's God, and he's marveling. He's like, whoa, wow, look at this. And he points at him and he says, listen up, Jews, Israelites, I've never found this kind of faith in all of you. Disciples, did you hear that? I've not found this kind of commendable, honorable, dignified character in one Israelite. It's a Roman. Wow, sir, wow. You see, he does that. He just does that. Why does he do it? He says, it's there so anybody who would like a commendation from God would imitate it. So we could read that and go, I want you to marvel at me. And then he goes, well, there you go. You, wanna, you want some applause? I'll give you a few places. And one of the places to find something you can imitate and emulate is what they did at Berea. You see. So more noble. Let's talk about that. The Greek word is well-bred, high society, dignified, distinguished. Here's the idea. What they did wasn't common. Commoners. Right? It was something rare and regal. Not something you find in everyday folks, everyday converts, everyday Christians. So this rare and royal quality, it had two components. Number one, they had these eager, hot, ready hearts open to do God's will. Two, they trusted the Bible with their very lives. These are the two things. Now they received, let's go with the first one there, they received the gospel with great eagerness. At surface read you think, well, you know, what's so commendable about that? Don't we all do that? Isn't that a common way Christians, I think when we start talking about this, you might have a different opinion about that. And so, yeah, we'd like to think we all come to church and approach learning and growing spiritually uh, with great openness and readiness and eagerness. But let's see, here's the definition. Open, primed, ready, hungry, prepared. This is 
the nuance there. Their bodies were present in the pews and their hearts and minds also. Their minds and hearts were spiritually stretched and limbered up and ready to go. The gas tank was topped off, the ignition was turned on, the engine was revved, the hand was on the shifter. The eyes were glued to the light waiting for the green. Room, room, room. Instead of coming out to a car that's parked cold, where are the keys? Half a tank of gas. It's a lot better to come out to something ready to rock. So let's go with another illustration. The iron. The iron is hot and ready for business. You're not needing to find it, plug it in, set up the board, load the water in there, set the dial, and wait. Ah, is it on? Is it on? I think the light's on. Oh, I don't feel any. Oh, I think I feel a little warm, little warm, little. Oh, it's getting warmer. There we go. Boom. Five or ten minutes later, God's like, I would prefer to come to my irons when they're hot, they're plugged in, they're ready. It's already. Oh, whoa. Press the button, boom, done. Don't gotta look for it. I'll go find it. I'll bring it over. I'll plug it in again. Oh boy, you're low in the water. I'll fill you up again. Because that's how you roll. You just kinda you enjoy the routine. It's a happy routine, and God's glad that we're in the routine, but there's not a whole lot of intentionality about being ready, not just when the word comes to you now, but in the lobby and in the car with your kids and your wife. Hot, ready, focused. Where are you? So that you're doing your work 24-7 with a listening ear for the still, still small voice of God Almighty to speak to his child and direct with wisdom who will bring blessing and being effective and productive for God, making eternal differences. And that's why you're on your tippy toes straining forward, God. Speak to me even as you're doing your work. Sorry, get a little animated, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Most of them are used to it here. You might be a new visitor. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelt. It's going to get worse. <laughs> so let me tell you, as a pastor, I can tell you about the spiritual atmosphere of readiness or unreadiness in any given venue. It differs from service to service, from church to church, to venue to venue, where you're speaking, Right? But the speaker knows. The speaker can feel, you know. It's that hard to define vibe, <laughs> you know. And uh, we're pretty spoiled here. When guest speakers come to the pulpit, they always tell me, wow, they're just so ready. They're so eager. They love the Bible. Man, it's just like they can't get enough. I was like, yeah, I know. We're very blessed here. Now, let me give you two examples. One where people are more noble than others. Okay, uh, a horrendous tragedy happened up north to a church family, and uh, it involved the pastor. It was horrendous, and I got asked to go and preach the first Sunday in the aftermath. And so I went with a heart to help. I had a scripture I felt would be helpful. I stepped behind the pulpit. I've never felt such a readiness, eagerness, people on the edge of their seats, a stillness that said, speak life to me. 
Oh, man, it was a beautiful time because they were noble. They were ready, focused. The Bereans didn't need a recent tragedy. That's the way they were. They thought, oh, my goodness, we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got God's breathed word. Uh, He's present. He can speak. It's God Almighty who spoke and made the earth, and I believe in him, and he might have something to say to me, to change my life, to give me comfort and wisdom and joy and healing. That's how they were. Now, let me give an example of, actually, it's ignoble. (laughs) All right, that's the opposite. I got invited to speak at our Bible college, um, Calvary Chapel down near Marietta Hot Springs. And I, I did a teaching. I did several times in several years. I, I taught at block classes there, taught block classes. I got invited to, the, to speak at the Sunday evening chapel. From the second I spoke, I knew it did not have the room. I tried everything, and you know I can try. <laughs> I've tried everything. The only thing I didn't do was a tap dance. And I was ready and willing, but the Lord just said no on the tap dance and all of that. So the lights were on. Nobody was home. And I I just, it was awful. One of the most unpleasant experiences I've ever had in 40 years of ministry. So let me tell you what happened. Afterwards, a teacher comes up to me and says, hey, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I see somebody who was there. Sad <laughs> that you had to experience that. Uh, and the teacher says to me, oh, man, brother, I should have taken you aside. I should have I warned you. I said, yeah, that would have been nice. <laughs> he said, did you notice all their earbuds? And I said, no, I didn't see the earbuds. He said, no, oh, it's the Dodgers game. It's the World Series. World Series, last game, do or die. And it's the home team, baby. They're Dodger fans, right? Well, you know what? The Bereans didn't have earbuds in. And I'll tell you what, we may laugh at that, but do we have earbuds on today? We do. Most of us have them now, spiritually speaking. And the earbud is, you know, just thinking about other things, other concerns, me, myself, and I, all my problems, all of what I've got plans to do. You know, the speaker gets a little slow or a little boring, and they're, they're gone in a heartbeat. You know, they're not on tiptoe anymore because they got the earbuds in. The Bereans checked the buds at the door. <laughs> Better yet, they never put them in. Instead, they have a listening device of the Holy Spirit, and they're really tuned in, not to the ball game, but to the work and the wooing of the Holy Spirit. And so God may God make us more like the Bereans in this way. But the second thing they did was they trusted God's word with their lives. They lived and breathed and died by God's word. If it was in the Bible, they're going to stand on that, come hell or high water. If I can see that in the print of the scriptures, I'm going to live it. I want to know it's true. Because the Bible is the only way we know anything about God and what God requires of man. That's it. 
his God-breathed word. That was their litmus test for truth and behavior. And they were, one Jew in the pew for sure said, that's funny, one Jew in the pew. (laughs) One Jew in the pew was feeling really blue. (laughs) So he said, hey, you. (laughs) I could do more, but I'm going to stop. So he says, so the one Jew says to another Jew, Paul, if you could show me in our Bible where it says our Messiah would be crucified, dead, buried, and raised, then I'm all in. And Paul's like, oh, I've got 300 to choose from, so let's see where we can go. That's just where he went. He's skilled. He's gifted. That's what he does. He's well studied. He's locked and loaded with all these pertinent prophecies. He's ready to fire, and fire away he does. And so, yeah, the Bible, if it says it, this is what makes you noble. It's the Bible. I don't care what I, if I have to die, I'm standing, I don't care what I have to lose, my friends, my family, my position. If it's in the Bible, I'm standing on it, Right? A woman who's more noble than other Christians. Uh, Debbie, let's call her Debbie because you guys are catching on. (laughs) So Debbie comes up at the beginning. I I use her all the time, so you've heard this story. But in the early days, she comes up to me. She goes, I'm struggling, okay? I'm a Catholic. I'm a lifelong Catholic. I'm a devoted Catholic. Uh, But I have Christian friends because I believe in God. And I've got these Christian friends always talking about Jesus more than my Catholic friends. And I've been listening, and, and, and they're saying, I only need Jesus. I don't need to call out to Mary or the other saints. I just go straight to Jesus. She goes, you show me in this, just like this, you show me in this Bible where I only have to call on Jesus and not Mary. Just show it to me. And I said, gladly. And I took the Bible, and I turned it to 2 Timothy 2 and 5, and I said, read it to me. And Debbie said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Cutest thing ever. She shuts the Bible with an attitude and goes, done. (laughs) With with a big smile. Why? Because she's more noble than most. She said, I don't care what the priest says. I don't care if they excommunicate me. I don't care if my family says, you've wandered away from the fold. Because now I could say, 2 Timothy 2, 5. We call on Jesus and Jesus alone. He's our mediator and none other. Amen? She's still around. She's still around 20 years later. and She still tells the story. She still comes up to me, gives me a bear hug, and she'll say, show me in the Bible. Yeah, we can show you in the Bible, sir, where, where it talks about human sexuality. We can show you in the Bible where life begins. We can show you in the Bible how this world is going to end. We can show you in the Bible what to do to make sure you wind up in heaven. And if we can show you chapter and verse, then you can trust that it's true. And therefore, you're not taking men's word for it. You're taking God's word for it. But many Christians are not this noble. 
So they listen to a pastor when the pastor says, hey, God, some new popular ideas. The world loves this. Listen up, everybody. God's no longer upset with unholiness. He's cool with it now. So you come in. God loves you the way you are. You don't need to repent anymore. Everybody's got a free pass. If it's your preferred natural... (laughs) If, If it's your preferred way to live, we applaud you even if. So, those who are not noble, they listen to, quote, Bible, fine-sounding arguments, and they're swept away. Why? Because they're not noble enough or disciplined to read in their Bibles. And it's not just human sexuality. It's that all roads lead to heaven. Would a God of love ever condemn people just because they don't come to his son through Jesus. There are many other ways. And, and your friends and mine and this millennial world filled with not just millennials who are going for this, but a lot of folks who are not noble in character and they get swept away. And what happens? They shipwreck their faith. Now, if you're genuinely saved, you'll be in heaven you're not going to be very usable, effective, or well-rewarded because you follow these philosophies without checking your scriptures. Check the scriptures and then stand. And when you see it written right there, you say, come on world, bring it, because this is truth and I'm standing on this. Amen? That's what makes folks noble. Now, what about the troublemakers in verse 13? Let's not forget about them, all right? When the Jews, the rejectors, because a lot of Jews got saved, but the unsaved, hostile Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God to their homies, as it were, 50 miles down the road to other Jews. They went there too, agitating the crowds, stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed there. The youngins, you know, they're just after Paul. And they escort him to safety all the way to Athens where Paul is going to have a very famous encounter with a bunch of Athenian philosophers. And so let's talk about the troublemakers, then we'll take communion together. Now, uh, some guys don't like losing. Uh, they're, they're very sensitive to losing, uh, and uh, uh, they, they don't handle it well. And here, here you go. Uh, they tried to snuff out the gospel fires in Thessalonica, and they wanted to keep it from going anywhere, but you know, you can't stop God, and so uh, the gospel goes to now Berea. Now, how did they find out? Well, they had couriers back in the day, and so either they found out through a positive example from a Jew who's either a friend of another Jew or a relative, and it's in a positive way, oh my word, we heard about Messiah, I received the Holy Spirit. God is real and Jesus is the Christ. Or it was a negative experience from a rejecting Jew who said, oh my word, did these guys come to you first because they're down here preaching that crazy stuff about Jesus? Either way, they found out that the gospel was alive and well in Berea. So they packed their bags and they go 50 miles you know, to Marin or so. Uh, That's how far it would be. 
and uh, they're going to do some damage. So they're marching down with mischief in their hearts, uh, malice. They're going to accuse them of all kinds of things and, and rile up everybody. And, you know, I started thinking, do they know that they're the bad guys in the story? Of course not. I don't think they do. I think they think they're the good guys in the story. Those who are hostile against the message of Christ feel like they're crusaders. They're crusaders for freedom from oppressive uh, Christians who think that their way is the only way and that everybody, they have to force their religion on everybody. So we need to fight back against this oppression, you see. So they don't see themselves uh, as the bad guys. In fact, Jesus said they will kill some of you and think they're offering a service to God. As the Pharisees were saying, praise God, let's kill him for the sake of God and the sake of our religion. And so, yeah, so that's what's going on there. There's some <laughs> the Bible says you're supposed to submit to God and resist the devil, but these guys are doing just the opposite. They're, they're resisting God and submitting to the devil. So down the 50 miles they come. Uh, members of the new family, and I love this, they're concerned for Paul's safety. So they rush him to, to uh, out of harm's way. I love that. You know why? I, it's nice to see people loving Paul. And now that everywhere Paul goes, you know he lost his wife, most writers say, most commentators say, probably had kids. The kids are nowhere around. <laughs> Trust me. His parents, as Jews do today, they disinherit people who leave the Jewish faith. So he's been written out of the will. He's been rejected at deep levels from his own children, his own family. And here in every stop, he's got young men and older men and women who love him. So now, Jesus said, if you lose something significant, like a mother or father relationship with a son or daughter, because of me, he goes, a hundred times, I'll give you a hundred times in this life and in the life to come. <laughs> when you lose something because you love God. And God has given you the nobility of character to stand on his word even in the face of such horrendous loss and abuse. He always makes up for it. And he'll bring into your life people who love you and admire you and protect you, pray for you. And this is what I see happening to Paul. He's being refreshed by his new family that God has brought in to surround him in the absence of those who left him high and dry. All right. So I think you get the point. Now, when they were examining the scripture, show me, show me, show me, show me. This is what they were studying every day. Uh, we got Isaiah 53.1. We'll just read 1 through 6, then we'll take communion. Nice. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I just want to explain this to you a little bit. Isaiah is going to show the paradox of having a weak, humble Messiah who ends up dying a horrendous death. So usually when you say arm of the Lord revealed, it means the power and the strength and the glory. But he's going to say the power and strength and glory of God is seen through the weakness 
and vulnerability of his son. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. So God the Son grew up under the love of God the Father as a tender shoot, not as a mighty redwood, you see. So it's the opposite how God uses weakness to bring life. And like a root out of dry dry ground, in other words, here's this flourishing tender shoot coming up out of Nazareth? You want to talk dry ground? It's not Alexandria for the Son of God. It's not being born in Rome. It's being born out in the boondocks out there, as we say, in Nazareth, in the Galilee. Who would ever expect a Savior? In fact, the byword, can anything good come from there? A root, a tender, little, fragile, vulnerable Son of God coming up. Who could believe it? He says. Not only that, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The Bible's not saying he's ugly. It's saying he's ordinary. He was an ordinary looking man. And nothing flashy, nothing Hollywood, no pizzazz to draw us to him. You see? And that's amazing considering he's God the most beautiful entity in all the universe. And when you see what he looks like now, wow. So yeah, he didn't have the Hollywood. He did wasn't born in prestige. He wasn't running around in king's palaces. He was born out in the rural areas, a nobody, an ordinary human being in poverty. This is the mighty power of God to save. Moving on. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Uh, He was sinless, and so he generated that kind of envy and resentment. A man of suffering, of rejection, and we all read about all of the the terrible things that he had to endure. Familiar with pain, he was a sympathetic high priest. He understands what it's like to have human pain and rejection. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Uh, He walked into a room and nobody's like, who's he? Where? Nazareth? What? You know? Just a regular guy. God. Very God of very God. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. That's why he's suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. So the Jews saw anybody hanging on a tree, the cross, as accursed from God. That God is saying, wow, my curse is on this man for his crimes. Right? Even though God the Father spoke right before he went to the cross from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, lest anybody think that God was rejecting the sun on that tree as it were moving on finishing up now but he was pierced show us in the bible brothers where he was pierced that's the roman piercing not hung or stoned or cut his head off show us where he was pierced He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds were healed. There you go. We are like sheep 
gone astray. Each has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him iniquity. I told you last week it means gross immorality. Our vilest, most vulgar sinning was laid on the sinless one, and he paid full. God sent his full strength lightning bolt. Boom. He died for you, and he died as you. You were on that cross with him, if indeed you're now seated in heavenly places with him in some mystical way. We were there, we are with him now, and that will be fully culminated at the trumpet call of God. And so these are the verses. They went home and they're checking that out and they're going, check, check, check everything about this humble guy raised in gentleness and poverty and he grows up here and rides in on a donkey, check, 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 pierced. We get it. And it goes on to talk about him being raised. And so now, with this on our hearts, and with the question asking God, God, am I noble in character? Am I ready and open and focused and hot? Red burning hot coals for you. The Bible says, always keep your zeal full. Never let it be waning. The word means boiling. Be, always be boiling. God, you see. So the question in communion, God, can it be more noble? Do I look at the word of God? Do I care about it? Do I hang my soul on every word? Let's pray. Father God, it is uh, just a, a paragraph or two, but it's got a punch. It's calling us upward. We all want to hear you say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And so you've given us lots of hints of how to get that, <laughs> how to get that uh, commendation at the end of our lives by, by living nobly, good stewards, good and faithful stewards of the life you've given us. Now, Father, bless our time, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.